We should probably start a politics podcast as well. Although it would just devolve. I mean, it already did devolve. It would just be 40 minutes of me and you talking about why the Tories are just utter bastards. I'll, t- I'll tell you what I'll do. If you write the politics podcast or you produce it, mm. I would guest on it. I, I, d- <laughs> I definitely do that, but I, I do not have the time to also write a politics. Oh, and... I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you know that I like... I mean, I might possibly be able to grab the time just before my wife gives birth, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the chances that I'll summon the energy uh, are zero. So <laughs> no, it's a, a newborn is not the time to start a project like that, especially mm. when politics moves pretty fast. You're going to have to <laughs> constantly update yeah. what you're doing, and also it's a pretty crowded market. It's not like I'd be able to differentiate myself much. Like, oh. imagine how many the Tories are bastards podcasts there are, like well, just in Liverpool. <laughs> you could you could just cover Victorian politics. We could take it from, we could do it weekly, episodically, and just you could start with the year Victoria came to the throne and cover her entire reign, and just just talk about the polit- politics that were going on during that year, Demonst- demonstrating that all the same scandals have always been happening. And all the same characters are always involved trying mm. the same confidence tricks in order to win votes. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a concept. Feel free to use it or don't. You know. It's an idea. It's, yeah. I, I'll loop back to that one in a couple of years' time when I finally get my life back together. <laughs> well, maybe what I need to do is I need to make this the intro so then when you're listening back to this, you can uh, loop back and be like, oh, yeah, I remember. That's why we were doing this. That's what we were doing. <laughs> You know, you know when I've I've died in a water skiing accident and you're just listening through our episodes. You're planning to go water skiing, are you? In about three years. About the time when you'll have free time again. (laughs) Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story begins Mm -hmm. at exactly 8.40am on August 25th 1896, because this was the exact time that the fifth Sultan of Zanzibar, Hamad bin Thuwaini, dropped dead. Ah. He had not been ill, so it was quite unexpected. I mean, mean, you know, for accuracy's sake, he clearly had been ill, he just wasn't aware of it. Oh, no, 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 he had not been ill. Oh, did he get shot in the head? There was was a weird thing with... um, the Sultanate of Zanzibar, because they had a reputation for people not really ruling a sultan very long, which was especially weird, considering it was such a young kingdom as far as kingdoms went. Well, what I, I think, Zanzibar doesn't exist anymore, does it? Uh, the Sultanate doesn't. That ended in the 1960s. Um, but the country does. But Well, the, the island of Zanzibar exists. Really? I didn't, I didn't know nothing about Zanzibar. I thought it was a made-up place. Well, the only, the, the only thing I know about Zanzibar is um, Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> Had something to do with Zanzibar land. Ah, oh, I, I didn't know that. I just thought you'd get it from the Tenacious D song. But that's a made-up story. Oh, yeah, of course. I'm not going to cook it, but I'll order it from Zanzibar. Yeah, yep, there you go. Uh, the island itself had been claimed by the Portuguese, along with a good chunk of the East African coast in 1507 which was less than 10 years after they first made their way around the Cape of Good Hope. So they, they went quickly from, oh, let's have a look what's here, to going, all of this stuff is mine, mm, mm. and you can't have it. Sounds European. Yeah. And the Portuguese spent the next 143 years creating forts, improving infrastructure, 
and generally transforming the area into a trading hub. Cracking. Uh, a lot of that was done via, you know, the use of slave labour. Of course. Well, you know, why use paid labour when slavery is free? Yeah, and Africa was literally just there, and they didn't consider Africans as people at this point, so... Well, I mean, nobody did. So. No. It, well, except I'm assuming the native Africans who did consider themselves to be people. Well, I mean, yeah, some of them. The, the major source of slaves for most of the European market was other African tribes yeah. selling. So, you know, it's a bit more complicated than that. But but the end result was if there wasn't a market for it, it probably wouldn't have happened in quite the same degree. No, no, I'm not, I'm not blaming the Africans at all. It's, uh, I mean... There's blame all around, except on, the part eat, of, yeah. except on the part of the people who were slaves. <laughs> but the problem with creating all these forts, improving the area, was that a lot of the local population managed to become quite wealthy and influential themselves. Just bastards. Uh, they weren't even white. And they used the, the wealth and the influence that they amassed to buy the weapons, to overrun the forts, to <laughs> run the Portuguese out of the area. The Portuguese don't strike me as very clever. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it was like any, you know, empire is, or, you know, any sort of colonial power. Eventually you overstretch your resources and the local mm. population just kept sort of just, OK, that's, that's fine. I, say, I see you've made that fort really, really impregnable. But it's all of us who work in it. And you've <laughs> sold us all guns and you're going out, you know, on a little campaign to put down some uh, local chieftain or, you know, local population. He's definitely not in coots with us, wink, wink. <laughs> and, and while you're out of the fort, we might, we've still got to clean it. You know, dust, dust collects just because you're not there. Oh, these boxes are full of brooms. <laughs> <laughs> heavy, heavy brooms. <laughs> you don't want to look in there. It's full of servant stuff. Yeah, you, you don't want to even sully your rich, noble eyes with servant tools. So, yeah, they managed to get hold of quite a few of the forts via subterfuge, and then once they got a foothold, uh, they just worked their way down the coast. So is Uh, this why Angola speaks Portuguese, then? It will be, yeah. Yeah, cool. Uh, The final nail in the coffin of Portuguese sort of dominance in East Africa was the taking of the amazingly named Fort Jesus at Mombasa in modern-day Kenya, which was finally overrun in 1698 after a two-year siege. And by about a year into the siege... Two years. Ugh, imagine the smell. Halfway in, it was like the rest of the Portuguese um, had had withdrawn from East Africa, pretty much. So the people in Fort Jesus knew they weren't getting relieved. This wasn't a, we've just got to hold on a bit longer. This was... Grim. Yeah. Like, we're dead either way kind of thing. Yeah, Yeah, we... if we can hold on long enough that they they feel we've put in a good show and might not kill us when we do eventually surrender. I I cannot see that one working out for them at all, but okay. But from that point, after Fort Jesus went down, there was a relative hundred years of peace on the island while it formed part of the Sultanate of Oman. Oh, really? Yeah, so Oman came in and, and took over. Because prior to the uh, um, Portuguese, oh being yeah, I suppose uh, is- Islam would have been right in the middle of its biggest expansionist phase at that point, wouldn't mm. it? So you know the the um, the sort of North African Arabic peoples had been they'd known about East Africa and they'd been there trading before the yeah. Portuguese turned up, and once the Portuguese were kicked out, it was these traders from North Africa who sort of filled the power vacuum. Yeah. 
Um, and in order to ensure that there would be no further interruptions from Europe, the newly installed Sultan of Oman decided he'd sign a treaty of friendship with Great Britain. Uh, number one mistake, Val. Number one mistake. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a treaty of friendship. It's with perfidious Albion. <laughs> we're, we're both you know, colonial powers, and we both respect each other's boundaries, and between us... We can take any bastard. Yeah, we can take any, so it's a really good move, and all he had to do was give the English a little toehold in the region that they wouldn't abuse, because they're English. I feel like we've got to start differentiating, though, because, like, the English as a whole are mm, not bright. (laughs) Like, what we're talking about here is the upper class. Yeah, Those the, perfidious, lying bastards. <laughs> the English that were our face to the world because they were the ones going around the world. Talking to people. Mm. Well, sometimes they talked. Um, yeah, mainly they, they shot stuff and, well, ordered other people to shoot stuff. Yeah, yeah. You God, I hate our hand. class system so much. <laughs> <laughs> but with backup from the British forces, slavery mm. and clove production intensified on oh, the island fantastic. of Zanzibar because those are the two things... Cloves um, and slaves. Cloves and slaves, because the slaves would also help with the clove production. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it almost sounds like an early run of um, the sort of cock, an early Cockney sweatshop. What do you make? Cloves and slaves. <laughs> Tracksuits in it. No, not that type of clothes. <laughs> slave, yeah, but the the slaves made the cloves, and the slaves were also, you know, this was like the uh, stopping off point in East Africa. So all the trade flowed through Zanzibar because it was a nice, uh, neutral, safe, you know, island just off the coast. It's a small island. It's easy for everyone to get to. You don't have to worry about, like, being surrounded by a big army. If everything goes south, you can Mm. theoretically jump on your ship and get the hell out of there. I get it. I see that. Uh, And at the the sort of height of the slave trade, it was estimated that about 600,000 slaves were passing through the island of Zanzibar each year. It was... Coach in terms of industry, Christ. and a lot of people became incredibly rich from it. Dickers. Uh, yeah, so the, with that happening, the, the main port, which was rather inventively called Port Town, um, it became <laughs> pretty much, you know, the, the major trading hub uh, yeah. of the East African region, and it was like the gateway to the Indian Ocean for a lot of European powers. In 1840... Uh, the then Sultan, who was conveniently named Said bin Sultan, <laughs> so a Sultan called Sultan, uh, <laughs> bloody hell! <laughs> he even decided that he was going to move the Oman court to the island, uh, leaving his oldest son to take care of things back in Muscat, which is the traditional capital of Oman. So yeah, actually, in Oman, yeah, Said bin Sultan, he was like. This, this island is, at, yeah. is lovely. I, I don't think it hurt that the palace had uh, an attached harem. Uh, I, I mean, I would have expected that all of his palaces had an attached harem. Isn't that yeah. like kind of like that? I don't think there are many benefits, like in terms of like. Yeah, no, but no, there's loads no, of no, benefits. What am I talking to be about? Fair, One this, of the many benefits of this being palace, a, being it had a harem member. attached. It had mm. seaside views because it's right on the sort of the the front. The, the, it was that's right nice. on the port. That's, that's always nice. Yeah. It had a, a building of wonder. A building of wonder? That just housed wonderful things. And oh a lighthouse God. attached. I mean, how many palaces have a lighthouse attached? Why would a palace want a lighthouse attached? Well, I think it was more, we need a lighthouse because this is a goddamn port. And 
it's sod it. Unfortunately, I mean, the palace is where we need to put the lighthouse. Yeah. <laughs> Your, your palace has expanded to the point where it's sort of consumed the lighthouse, so now it's just part of the grounds. But I'm guessing it was a nice, you know, you got the coastal breeze, it was obviously a lot of wealth was fro- flowing through there, as mm. was a lot of influence in terms of there were loads of different councils from, um, consuls even, from all the different European powers. So in terms of power broken, mm. it was probably the better place to be because it was the, you know, the choke point and the hook. Well, yeah, if, if, it, if it's where... The the trade with the Indies was the actual Indies, not the West Indies, was mm. um, huge for Europe at the time, wasn't mm. it? Like the, you know. So he felt he could control that better from Zanzibar, yeah. and he had his you know eldest son holding the fort down, so he's he was happy. Mm. And also, I suppose what, what years are we talking? Sixteen hundreds. Yeah, no, this is eighteen forty. Eighteen forty. Oh, right, okay. Well, yeah, eighteen even so, eighteen forty. It's not like the Silk Road's open much at the moment, is it? Like you, you got war in Crimea and. Uh, Oh, yeah, the Hundred Years of Peace really wasn't that peaceful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Considering, you know, like, oh, yes, we've... we've China's been... falling apart, as it ever was at the time, and Russia was sort of gearing up to tear itself apart. <laughs> it's it's less the Hundred Years of Peace and the Hundred Years where Britain was doing rather well in most conflicts, which is yeah, well, it, it's almost peace, isn't it? Yeah. You know, as, mu- as much as, like, we're clearly the bad guys of most of you know, early modern history. There's a certain amount of, A, anyone else would have, any any other European power would have done it if they could. It's just we got there first. So it's not like they were better, they were just slower. <laughs> and, so, which isn't a defence, I'm just saying, like, in the we weren't things, We weren't going to turn it, the wheel of history 180 just by yeah, bowing if, out of it. Yeah, if, if we'd have been nice, then the French would have just popped up and been bastards, or the Spanish, or the Portuguese, or whoever had got their crap together enough. It wouldn't have been... You know, it wouldn't have been nice without us. I don't know why that's important to remember. I'll probably come up with a phrase with something later. But <laughs> if I can There'll remember. be a phrase. But it's just like, I think maybe it's just it just relates to the sin, the whole sins of the father idea. Like nobody alive today can really bear any responsibility for it. And even if he said they could, what would it change? What's, mm. what's the point? So blame is a bad thing in general, for historic crimes, but it's important to be aware of them as well. well However, if there so are any Nazis still alive, lock, you can well, go ahead yeah, and lock them up. Yeah, but that's slightly different because most be of them... in the 90s, either, but you can, you can lock them up. Yeah, most of them would have either signed an order or murdered somebody themselves. Mm. So like, that's slightly different to like saying, your great-great-grandfather stole a statue from somewhere. Well, yeah, and... But, what, but again... Do you, to, do you want to nick my TV in response or something? Don't, don't just give the statue back. That seems... Well, yeah, but if, if you've still got the statue, of course. But if you don't, like, what do you want? You know what I mean? I want you to sculpt a new statue. Exactly, it's ridiculous. But even though the Sultan's idea to... He's going to move himself to, to Zanzibar and he's going to leave his oldest son back, uh, taking care of things in Muscat. Logical. It was logical right up until the point where the Sultan died, because um, yeah. he died in 1856. You know, because most, most leaders will eventually die, we have to remember that. M- most. <laughs> the yeah. exception, of course, being Kim Jong-il, who is eternal. Yeah. <laughs> as far as we know, he is. Mm. And he owns Draw, a unicorn. And, and he completed golf. Remember the time he completed <laughs> golf? I Played do remember 18. the time he completed golf. Played 18, shot 18, completed it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Move on. What's the next sport? <laughs> well, the problem was, you'd think the elder son would just claim the throne. 
Which, yeah, yeah he did, because he was in the capital. Yeah. However, ah. <laughs> the little bro- brother, Majid bin said, he also decided to claim the throne, reasoning he was actually with his father at court in Zanzibar at the time of his father's death, so he actually had all of the people in a position of power with mm. him. Cause, so civil war was the order of the day, basically. Well, it seemed like that was the way things were going to go because the brothers were sending letters to each other going, no, I called dibs. Well, I'm the oldest. Yeah, well, I licked I, I called dibs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Fantastic. I know they didn't have crowns, but it's like, well, I've, I've got the crown here and I've licked it, so it's mine. Incredible. Um, what, a, what a weird war as well. It would have been money versus territory. Mm. What wins? Probably money. Money. <laughs> Always the money. But luckily... While the brothers were sort of sending letters back and forth, they both started to notice that the English were watching on, licking their lips and waiting. What I imagine was happening was like a couple of of the commanders of the various British forces were licking their lips and everybody else was going, Oi, where's me fucking beer? (laughs) Well, the people in the know were going, hmm. All we need to do is we wait for them to start throwing punches and then we step in to protect our trading interests as a trading nation, not as an occupying power. Oh, yes. (laughs) As a trading nation. (laughs) Do you reckon when they got drunk on gin, they were like, I can't believe they keep letting us get away with this Monty. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Well, do you know what? If you've got a tactic that keeps working for some reason, why change the tactic? Why do it? It's like, it's like you, the, you I, stop I, us. It's like I once saw somebody write a concept for a book where um, Odysseus, um, you know, his voyages mm. after after Troy, like the concept was that the gods keep teleporting him through time and space. Like, so he goes to like alien worlds and different dimensions and stuff. And everywhere he goes, he does the Trojan horse because it keeps working because for the places he's gone, no one's ever done it before. <laughs> And then when he finally gets back to Earth, he tries the Trojan horse again. And everyone's like, what the fuck are you doing? This is ridiculous. We've known about this for a thousand years. And he's like all... completely bewildered. I've been to all planes of existence and this has never not worked. Yeah. You fall for this. Odysseus, you're talking to us from within the horse. I think we found you. No. <laughs> Shut up. Just go to sleep. I want to come out and stab you. Luckily, actually, the brothers decided to change up um, their plan, and rather than have a little bit of a civil war, they came to an agreement. Oh, that's nice. Where they decided that what they'd do is they split the kingdom. Uh, that's stupid. <laughs> no, 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 but um, Majid bin Said became ruler of the newly formed Sultanate of Zanzibar, mm. but he was pretty much just a vassal state for his brother, and he had to pay uh, a yearly tribute to his brother. Hmm. So essentially what he became was a metropolitan mayor. A top-ranking noble. Yeah, um, but he got to have the, the, the title the of title. sultan and he was definitely subservient to his brother and they were both happy with that. He got to have his own little court in his, you know, with his house of mystery and his harem and his brother got to say, well, no, I'm still sultan of Oman and we still rule Zanzibar. It's just that you know, we rule it as a vassal state rather than just uh, a part of our territory. Yeah. So much, so much of history's problems could have been solved if the nobles could have pulled their finger out of their stupid pride and gone, you know what, it doesn't actually matter if I'm a king or if I'm just a duke. Why can't I just be a duke? Because <laughs> I'll still <laughs> not have, have more big, money not, than yeah. I'll ever spend. Yeah, exactly. Not have a big war and I'll just 
live exactly the same as if I was a king, except once every five years I have to like, bow yeah. once or twice. The, the amount of bloodshed that's been caused by some rich toff refusing to bow or refusing to just go, you're, you're better than me. Knowing full well, it's probably not them who's going to die. It's going to be quite a few of the people living on their lands. Oh, yeah. yeah and then yeah. eventually, after a couple of months of that, they'll bow anyway. Yeah. And everyone will go, just... oh, do you remember that time you tried to rebellion, Quentin? Oh. <laughs> yes, well, I'd had a bad year, you know. I mean, if we... Oh, the wife was bugging Quentin, me for a new you're, kitchen. You're always, and... you're always argued like a damn peasant. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, I throw on my worst robes and I go to the local pub. Everybody is very polite because they know their place. <laughs> <laughs> it's that pretending, oh, he thinks he's in disguise again. Oh, Let's God. give him the true, authentic, ye olde pub experience. What, shoulder barge him into a pillar and then spit in his pipe? <laughs> <laughs> but make sure you let him win. <laughs> oh, I went down there, there was some rough housing. Oh, oh, it makes God. you feel alive. So That's, that sounds really gay. <laughs> I was just, you know, getting hot and sweaty with a few buff men who'd been working in the fields, it, and we it pumped me all night long. <laughs> and then I came back and changed my clothes and pretended it didn't happen. Although the new kingdom had started out well, with Majid been said he was he was actually he'd learned from his dad uh, his, hmm. the knee of his father, and he consolidated his power base over seventeen years. Um, the estrangement of the two kingdoms subsequently allowed the British to begin dictating policy because although the two brothers talked a lot and yeah. were able to sort of, you know, keep as a solid block. Yeah. The heirs by the ta- yeah, the, their heirs were only cousins. Uh, and, and they weren't talking after that, yeah. quite so much. And it was at that point that the British sidled into both sides and went, I bet if you get our help, you can... You can come out on top, yeah. You can reunify the kingdom, and there only really needs to be one sultan, doesn't yeah. there? A British-backed sultan. And because we were Britain, they believed us. Oh, yeah. Um, well, they're very well-spoken. They're so polite. <laughs> so, the, during the second reign, which was a 14-year reign of Sultan Baragesh bin Said, the mm. British started to make some suggestions quite strong suggestions, to be fair, <laughs> that he should go ahead and maybe place a ban on trading in slaves in the kingdom. Uh, okay. I mean, uh, why? Were we, were we, 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 were, we were anti-slavery at, at that moment, and it was a case of if we've decided to go that way... We're going to make everybody do it or they've got a competitive advantage. You know? Pretty uh, much. So, you know... It wasn't out, it wasn't out of like, the goodness of our hearts. Let's get that one straight out of the no. way. <laughs> uh, and considering a lot of the nobles in Zanzibar had pretty much made the money off slaves... They weren't quite so happy. So yeah. in 1873, the British added a little bit of a sweetener to that deal and said, do you know, if you do ban trading on slaves, we won't implement a naval blockade on Zanzibar. <laughs> we won't shoot you in the face with a Lee Enfield rifle. <laughs> yeah, and it turns out that even though it was deeply unpopular with you know, the, the higher classes of Zanzibar itself, the Sultan went ahead and, and did it because he, he reasoned getting some money from trade hmm. was better and than food, getting... of course, yeah. because a full blockade would have been a full blockade at that point. Like, you know, for all that you can crap on the British for being all over the place morally, like they did, you know, materially they did rule the, rule the oceans hmm. at that, in that particular time and you couldn't argue with that. So, And it probably came as no surprise that 
as the British influence in the kingdom grew over the years, the average reign of sultans dropped off, which mm. is where we get to the point of, you know, it became a bit of a running joke that sultans in Zanzibar wouldn't last that long. Uh, with the <laughs> next three, considering the first two uh, were 17 years and 14 years, the next three sultans uh, managed to reign for less than eight years combined. Oof. Were they all being poisoned or shot? Uh, I think it was stress-related because they were basically being used as a shield uh, from the grumblings of the locals uh, by the British who were covertly forcing through a range of concessions, including, but not limited to, having exclusive trading rights along a major stretch of East Africa, having a Brit called Sir Lloyd Matthews in charge of the Zanzibar army. Sounds unusual <laughs> allowing sir lloyd matthews to restore order on their behalf during a series of anti-german riots which probably needs a bit of explanation because i haven't mentioned the germans yet <laughs> so yeah but th- th- this is is this a case of uh, good old kaiser wilhelm one trying to get involved really late in the day in the colonial game and doing it really amateurishly. Yeah, this, this was the scramble for Africa. This was there's there's very little left. We need to try and grab it. And when we even were, the Belgians did better than the Germans. Jesus Christ! When when uh, the British were given this stretch of East African coast, the Germans were also given a stretch of East African coast. It was yeah. just below the British. Tanganyika, I believe it was called. It was. And I, the I learned about the scramble was for flawless. Africa. But, I learned about the scramble for Africa because. Um, I went through a phase where people tried to tell me that Cecil Rhodes was a hero, mm. and it never quite added up through me. So um, I, I sort you of looked into he it, was... and it turned out he wasn't. Yeah, and he just he was a monster. More about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Who knew Cecil Rhodes was an absolute monster? Everyone. Everyone. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, whereas the British were quite good at the subterfuge game by this stage, mm. and were making all the right sounds, yeah. doing. Even sensible things like allowing the local population to fly the flag of the Sultanate of Zanzibar mm-hmm. and allowing them to say things like, we're still an independent trading nation, and going, yes, yes, of course you are. <laughs> the Germans took a more heavy-handed approach, and they started, for some reason, banning the flying of yeah. the national flag. With which... insecurity as a colonial... Like, we, we, like, I'm going to revert to using we just because it's easier to understand. We knew we were better. It doesn't matter what flag they fly, ours is better. They think they can do whatever they want with their stupid flag. Whereas the Germans, too but, insecure, too yeah, insecure. What they were doing is they, they were um, forcing them to take down the flag mm. and then there would be a little clash and they would do things like, um, I don't know, send a German gunboat to shell the town, <laughs> land an armed force and just drive everybody into the jungle Delightful. in absolute terror. So... The, the Sultan agreed that in order to put down the uprisings, Sir Lloyd Matthews could restore the peace. Um, and in order to do that, they said, well, actually, what we really need is we need um, an authority, a British authority to kind of take over the entire region. To, so, to, to make sure we can kick out the Germans. Uh, so in 1888, yeah. um, the Sultan granted the British East Africa Company exclusive trading rights over a territory of just 50,000 square miles. Just a little portion of all of the East African coast. <laughs> Which basically became Kenya. <laughs> yeah, essentially. It's, oh, well, you've, you've helped to do that, so can you just sort of look after Kenya for us? But, you know, it's still ours. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> of course it is. They also managed to convince a subsequent sultan to make the kingdom a British protectorate. Oh, because that, that really makes sure the British will come when you fly the bat signal. Oh, dear. 
<laughs> that also Poor came Sultan. with a slight stipulation because it's like, well, if you are going to be a British protectorate, you're still Sultan, but you'll have to have a parliament and we'll have to make sure that it's a British person who's the first minister in all future governments. <laughs> That's just, it's just a thing we do. It's, yeah. it, if anything, it's, it's, it's more definitely, admin. Definitely, definitely not a viceroy. We don't even use the word viceroy. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, if we have to put a viceroy in, it's more expensive for us. It's better to have a sultan um, and just a first minister. <laughs> who definitely doesn't tell the sultan what to do another way another way of putting it would be grand vizier we all know what a grand vizier does to a sultan don't we <laughs> he's, I, I know it's weird he is from essex but his name is jafar um he's just gonna <laughs> come in and advise loves parrots crazy guy <laughs> <laughs> and the final sort of i don't want to say nail in the coffin uh, but the final stipulation was agreeing that no future sultan could be appointed without British consent. Oh, yeah. And all of this was achieved under the guise of being both a trading partner and a friend to the Sultanate of Zanzibar. Yeah, well, you know, we've come a long way and we now understand that we now understand terms like abusive manipulation, <laughs> gaslighting. Battered, battered wife syndrome for an entire nation. It's the battered wife syndrome for three quarters of the world. <laughs> so, it's quite impressive. Like I, I, I always fall back on that um, old lie. I can't remember who said it. I think it might be Frankie Boyle, but it could have been someone else. But the British Empire is proof that nothing, nothing will motivate like, the determination to make everybody else as miserable as you are. So after all of that, we're back to um, August 25th, 1896. Yeah, the, the last sultan has carved it. Mysteriously, uh, he's he's dropped dead, and General Matthews, because he was still head of the Zanzibar army, and the British head diplomat, who was called Basil Cave, they immediately—that's <laughs> the, one of the most British names ever. Basil. Basil Cave. They immediately headed over to the seafront palace to help the Zanzibar nobles make the right choice with regards to the <laughs> next ruler. Yeah, because you you can't make that kind of choice without. Well, you, you literally can't. It says right there in the contract yeah. that you signed. <laughs> You've got it. It's up to them, really. <laughs> and they were surprised to find that they arrived at almost the exact same time as 22-year-old Khalid being Bargesh. He was the cousin of the recently departed. And by recent, I do mean 10 minutes mm. had passed since the Sultan had died. Uh, so he was the cousin of Hamid bin Thawani. And it was surprising as like I've said before, the Sultan had not appeared in any way ill prior to his death, and he was only in his 50s. It wasn't like mm. this was an elderly man and it had just it's been... A, it's, it's all going a bit Poirot. Oh, very Poirot. Because... <laughs> but not Marple. There wouldn't have been any women there. She'd have been in the harem. <laughs> well, Basil Cave, he twirled his moustache and he suspected <laughs> foul play. <laughs> Perfectly appropriate because moustache twirling is either is either a curious quirk of a Belgian detective or the mark of a master villain. Well, to be honest, I don't think you're allowed to be called Basil and not have a moustache. It's true. Even mm. Basil Faulty had a moustache. Yeah, and uh, I mean, that comes from birth. That's why people are called Basil. Sorry, the TV's come on because I sat on the remote. I apologise. <laughs> it's off now. Well, the leading theory was um, that uh, Bin Thwaini had been poisoned. By his cousin Khalid. He was the main suspect. I mean, Having turned up with, with seemingly magical knowledge of this death. 
Well, he turned up with seemingly magical knowledge of his death and a lot of armed men. Ah, well, yeah. I guess the armed men makes it moot, though. It's like, you killed him. Maybe I did. (laughs) Let's you and him fight about it. (laughs) I have a Maxim machine gun. So, (laughs) hmm. We're just going to have to agree to disagree. And to be fair to the British, they weren't just accusing um, Khalid because he was the first person who turned up. It wasn't like, mm. a, well, you'll make a nice scapegoat. He had form. because <laughs> He's killed before. Well, after the death of the previous sultan three years before, Khalid had attempted to sneak into the palace to declare himself as the new ruler before anyone else knew what was is, happening. Is this how Zanzibar worked? It was basically like... Dibs. Ace. <laughs> you know, when you're playing tag, I'm on base, you can't touch me. <laughs> well, what he'd done is he'd convinced his aunt, so the wife of the former ruler, to let him in by a side door and mm. thus had claimed dibs, which you would think every right-thinking British person would accept. Yeah, it's true. That's how we got the empire. <laughs> and to be fair to the British, they did admit that Khalid had, and this is a direct quote, a very strong claim as the son of the second sultan, Bargesh. However, right. they were not prepared to let a headstrong teenager ruin a good thing, and mm. they immediately landed 200 marines with machine guns who stormed the palace and removed Khalid, placing him under house arrest and telling him, don't do it again. Yeah. See, this is the problem with trying to deal with the Brits. It's like, they do it all nicely, nicely. They do it all subtle. They do it all like, you know, they're not like the Germans dropping a shell on a village every time they get upset and all the rest of it. But when it comes right down to it, they were also really double hard bastards. <laughs> Speak softly and carry a big stick, wasn't it, basically? Well, you know, it was lucky they did it because they managed to install Sultan Hamid bin Thawaini. And he was so grateful that they'd um, foiled the attempted coup that he gave even more rights to the oh, British in terms of governing the kingdom. Of course. So what it worked it? out great. I, I think it, it, it wouldn't have mattered which one of them had first gone to claim the throne, the British would have done this as a... Yeah, yeah, almost certainly. It's a divide and rule classic, isn't it, basically? This time around, though, Khalid had not only gotten his aunt in on the plan, Hmm. he'd arrived at the palace with 1,200 troops and announced to the two stunned Brits that he would be declaring himself as Sultan at 3pm that day. So he'd gone for, I've managed to get the majority... <clears throat> of the um, Zanzibar army on side. And I'm going to declare myself Sultan before you have a chance to bring any Marines in right. to try and argue the toss. Matthews and Cave, they decided discretion is the better part of valour, and they returned to the new custom house <laughs> to reassess the situation. <laughs> well, cunning, buggers. Well, it, it didn't seem cunning at first because while they were busy having a good think, another thousand men loyal to Khalid lined themselves up in the main square with machine guns, which they aimed at the customs house, mm. where Matthews and Cave were, and quite pointedly at a building called the English Club. Yeah, well, you know, I've, what I'm thinking is that Khalid's in the direction of travel and like, no, <laughs> I know exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to try and cover all the bases here. Anything English is going to cause me grief so go and point a gun at it to stop it from causing me grief like at least laugh- until 3 p.m he's laughably unprepared for the level at which the british are playing the game i i, I don't know what's going to happen but i know he's going to lose because this is the 1800s britain, well, you, you say britain that didn't lose britain didn't lose but it's, it's, khalid didn't. khalid's men they managed mm. to take control of the entire zanzibar navy look this is going to end with the british winning 
This, this, this is the 1800s. It's, be... it's, it was the golden century <laughs> and Britain. Like, it's, it's like, you know, you know, during that time in the 70s and 80s where they said football's a simple game, 22 men chase a ball and at the end Liverpool win. Mm. It's like, colonialism's a simple game. <laughs> 18,000 countries chase, chase the territory and at the end the British win. That's, that's the 1800s in a, in a, in a phrase. <laughs> no, but they got the Navy. They yep. got control. Um, the Zanzibar Navy at the time consisted of a single boat called the Glasgow. <laughs> given to them by the British. <laughs> the British had presented to the Sultan in 1878, presumably because it would cost more to sail it home and scrap it. It was not a good boat. It it's did not, not have many not talking, armaments. We're not talking ship of the line. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Oh dear, no. For their part, the British had two up-to-date fearsome Navy ships. Oh God, dreadnoughts! Or close no, to it. No, they were, they were just um, they were just destroyers, but they were underwhelmingly called Thrush and Sparrow, which were anchored in the harbour alongside the Glasgow. Yeah, we do have a tendency to name our ships shit things. I don't know what it is about the country. And to to sort of underline how crap the Glasgow was as a ship, Thrush and Sparrow both decided to ignore it completely, and they instead aimed their heavy guns at the palace and surrounding buildings. Mm. And just waited for further orders because obviously, it's, it's at the moment it's a ten. The two commanders are trapped in. Yeah, the two commanders are trapped in the customs house with a machine gun pointed at. <laughs> and luckily for the British, not everyone on the island was happy that Khalid was seizing power, and they found their forces bolstered by the Askaris, who were troops from Zanzibar who did, kind of weighed up the two options, and decided. Probably not good to side with someone who's definitely poisoned his own cousin for power. <laughs> and they and decided... he's also, to be fair, it's also, if you just take a look through this telescope, about to be shot by a giant naval gun. <laughs> oh, that whatever the reason, they decided they were going to take a gamble and they were going to side with the government, which essentially meant siding with the Brits. Yeah. Within it's always hour, a good idea to side with the superior military force. <laughs> well, at the, at the time, in terms of um, ground troops, it was definitely um, Khalid who had the upper hand. He had over 2,500 men. They had machine guns. They had a couple of artillery pieces, which, again, had been presented by the German and British governments and were mm. maybe a bit 17th century. Mm. You know, they were made of brass and they were made ceremonial. Did he have anything ceremonial. that could stop naval shells falling on his head? He had the hope that the Brits wouldn't want to at the moment. So, so what you're saying is no. No, no, he didn't <laughs> so have he that. he actually was at a massive tactical disadvantage. He didn't feel so. Well, did, yeah, you know, I presume he didn't feel so because otherwise he would have realised the reality of the situation and gone, I am at a massive tactical disadvantage. Yeah, but, but what had happened is within an hour of the Sultan dying, the forces on both sides were large enough that any fighting was likely to cause a significant amount of death, destruction. For the island of Zanzibar. Which, you know, in turn would mean disruption in trade, which meant it would fuck with the money. So Matthews and Cave decided the better course of action was to try and open negotiations because although yeah, yeah. they probably felt that, you know, they could win this battle, it's like, well, do we why want do, to disrupt bother, trade? Yeah. Again, that shows the difference between the Germans and the British. No insecurity about the British. We don't care if we, you know, we we don't need to win this battle to prove anything. We just want some money. Mm. <laughs> the important thing is already. the coffers, gentlemen. <laughs> yes. But they sent a message into the palace warning Khalid that if he went through with declaring himself Sultan, it would mm. be seen as an act of rebellion. 
that would be reported back to the government in London. So oh, think shit, on. Lord Salisbury will be most perturbed <laughs> by this turn of events, and he, he, he can might, be riled. Yeah, he might send an entire division or something. Maybe even a, a red one regiment, that'll do it. To be fair to Khalid, he was a bit preoccupied when the messenger arrived, as he was busy burying the old sultan in the palace grounds. <laughs> After all, he didn't want a corpse cluttering up his coronation. <laughs> and it exactly... This is a mad story, it's ridiculous. At exactly 3pm, which was only half an hour after they buried the old sultan, Khalid had himself declared sultan. Oh. He had his four artillery guns fire a royal salute. Oh, I should have pointed them at a ship. <laughs> <laughs> while the British forces had to go around each of the foreign consuls to inform them that, despite appearances, there was not actually a new sultan just yet. Because we didn't say so. <laughs> because we didn't say so. It's like, yes. And look he's... at this contract, it says right here that unless we say so, he isn't sold. <laughs> uh, Cave then sent a message back to London to ask how the PM wanted them to proceed. How did he send it with Telegram? I have no idea. He he got the it ship. there somehow. <laughs> In about five months when I get this back, you're going to be real sad. No, I'm guessing. <laughs> considering there is a reply very quickly, Yeah, it's Telegram. Yeah. Um, but even with a Telegram, it took quite a while to get Back and forth. Oh, yeah, it's got a radio booster signal and stuff, isn't it? So both sides decided, we've done all we can do today. It's been a busy day. <laughs> Let's go to bed. Truly, it was a more civilised age. Under what, what was described as an uneasy truce. <laughs> yeah. It seemed, to be fair, that Khalid was hoping that the British government would decide that it made more financial sense to accept Khalid as ruler and come to an arrangement with him rather mm-hmm. than risk the disruption to trade. So that was his entire, his entire play was, well... I play the naughty child, and the, and the benevolent father will uh, back more, off, basically. I, I, will, I will take power, but I will, you know, open negotiations. I will say that I will give, you know, beneficial trading terms, and yeah, the Brits yeah. will say, well, mm, Good enough. it's not what we wanted, but we can save face by, you know, sort of formally acknowledging you you can sign a treaty with us and he can call himself Sultan. Mm. So he's he's hoping that he can negotiate his way out of this. The next day at 10am, another British ship arrived in port Ooh. called the Raccoon. <laughs> it was not carrying a message from London, but having seen the situation, it decided to stick around and lined up next to the Thrush and the Sparrow, training its guns on the palace. Yeah. Then at 2pm, Everyone involved in the entire situation got a bit of a shock when the 7,000-ton, 24-gun British flagship, the St. George, sailed into port. Jesus Christ. It was commanded by Rear Admiral Harry Rawson. Mm. He sounds like a man who uh, doesn't doesn't shit about, basically. (laughs) Well, um, Harry Rawson had been born in Walton, which, as you know, is now part of Liverpool. Oh, my God, a scouser. <laughs> and he was famed as a successful and practical commander who, despite proudly wearing a silver medal from the Royal Humane Society, mm-hmm. which he was awarded for jumping off his ship at night during a battle to save the life of a drowning marine, mm-hmm. he was known to be quite ruthless when it came to stamping out rebellion in the empire. Yeah, yeah. Like any scouser who's risen... To the top, <laughs> it's got there by being incredibly ruthless because literally no one likes him. So. <laughs> yeah, he he was the kind of guy who 
he he wasn't going to be into the political nuances of yeah. this situation. <laughs> Kill them all, let God sort them out. Uh, this development probably gave Khalid some pause for thought as he watched from the windows of the palace. Oh shit, they sent the flagship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that might not mean good things for me. Yeah. Rawson just had time to land and take command from Matthews and Cave when a response turned up from London. It said, The British authorities in Zanzibar have permission to act as they see fit. Oh my god. <laughs> Carte Blanche to an aggressive scouser with a gunship and a force of marines. Oh dear. Rawson declared himself to be the authority. Well, he's a rear admiral. You don't get much higher. The navy outranks all the other services, doesn't it? I'm pretty sure under the terms of the uh, subsequent agreements that have been signed with all of these sultans that he actually outranked Khalid, whether he was sultan or not. Yeah, by this stage. Wouldn't surprise me. So he just decided, I'll sort I'm this. I'm in charge here. Yeah. I'll sort this quite quick. And he scribbled a quick ultimatum, which he had uh, sent across to the palace. The ultimatum read, take down your flag. Surrender or die, lad. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> take down your flag and leave the palace by 9am on the 27th of August, or I will blast you out. <laughs> so it's shortened to the point, <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> He, d- he oh didn't see God. the point of any kind of nuanced negotiation. It's like, fuck off, or I'll make he's you fuck off. He's big and he's fucking up. He'll shoot you from a thousand yards. <laughs> he then, to be fair to him, spent the rest of the day ensuring that civilians in the town were taken to places of safety. After <laughs> oh, all... Keep that humane medal. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he is a humanitarian. So he had um, most of the woman folk... Um, Regardless, escorted off somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. No, they were escorted onto the ships. Well, I mean, that is a struggle to think of a safer place, to be honest. Yeah. He also um, had all of the shipping not go to Port Town, but to go to a southern port. So he had all shipping redirected because what he didn't want was anything accidentally getting between the Royal Navy ships yeah. and, and the also palace. He didn't, want, he didn't want to fuck with the money, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was like, well, trade can continue down there because this ain't going to take long. <laughs> we just we just need a day, guys, and it'll this be back to business as usual. Farcical, Jesus Christ! Khalid should have backed down. Like I know pride, all the rest of it, but Jesus Christ, he was onto a massive loser. Well, he he stayed in the palace through the night of the twenty sixth, and on Probably the morning himself without the, any idea what to do. On the morning of the twenty seventh, as he'd received no word from Khalid that he was indeed going to fuck off. Uh, at 8am, the signal was hoisted from the flagship to prepare for action. Oh, God. Understandably, Khalid was a bit concerned. <laughs> uh, Wait, they're actually going to fire on me? <laughs> to the point where he sent a messenger to ask exactly what the British planned to do. And... <laughs> this is such a weirdly civilised micro-war. <laughs> they're all talking to each other the whole time. <laughs> He sent a messenger and it's like, uh, the Sultan of Zanzibar is, is requesting to know what you plan to do. And Rawson wrote out the same ultimatum verbatim and had the messenger deliver it a second time. Mm. You need to leave by 9am or I blast you out of there. Khalid, possibly having never encountered a scouser before, <laughs> decided this was just posturing. <laughs> And that they were just trying to intimidate him. I'm imagining the smash cuts, like in a movie version of it, like this grand sultan in his palace, this all traditional stuff, and it's like, he would never do this. This is an insanity. <laughs> and then it comes to a scouser in a track, going, I want to fucking do him. <laughs> well, you, you don't disrespect Rawson. Oh, that's all I know. 
but but Khalid, to be fair to him, he's like, I have three thousand people in this palace. A lot mm. of them are civilians. Mm. And he's a I, humanitarian. <laughs> yeah, he's a humanitarian. He's got a medal. He's not going to force Dis- the issue. Indiscriminately blast the crap out of the palace. He wants me to back down and leave. And he's, but I'm not going yeah, to. He's gonna, it's brinkmanship is what it is. Mm. And Khalid is like, I gave up last time. Last time I was in the stage, palace. Yeah. I almost had the ceremonial hat on my head. Mm. And I, you know, gave I gave up. in to the intimidation this time. No, no, they're just going to have to accept me as sultan. And in time, I'm sure we can build a working relationship. It's, it's good. It's yeah. fine. So he called Rawson's bluff. Mm. And responded that he did not intend to leave the palace while he was still alive. Front which Rawson game. took as a challenge. Oh, no. Yeah, you front is in the central part of Liverpool, like, culture. Like, yeah, but you've you, got you, to back it up. That's the thing. Yeah. Exactly, but the few people are as well placed as a rear admiral in charge of the actual flagship <laughs> to back up their military might. We we know what happened from this point on, as there happened to be a Reuters um, agent oh present during right. <laughs> during the conflict, and he said thusly, "The suspense was intense during the last quarter of an hour, as the hands of the clock on the tower gradually crept on towards nine o'clock." Well, it's not often a war has a time, like a countdown, is it? Mm. Like normally they're started by like an assassination follow. Like you know, I'm not saying that they just like spring up out of nowhere, but it's like there's a general undercurrent and like a heading towards war, and everybody gets prepared, and then there's a spark, and then like armies. You know what I mean? Like it, it happens, but it doesn't happen at like right at exactly this time. Everybody gets war in a big starts. Fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Can we can we push the war back till ten? I I was going to cook some bacon, so I'm yes, going to need a bit of extra time. <laughs> okay, well, if we're pushing it back to ten, can we do ten thirty? Because you know my wife's at a yoga class, and I'd like her to be able to finish that and get home before war. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, ten thirty. Ten thirty, good for you. Exactly. Anyway, it's a bit ominous and weird. The clock ticked round, and eventually nine a.m. arrived. Lawson immediately gave the order to fire. I'm 100% certain that he immediately gave the order to fire. Nothing happened. Oh my god, I'm so disappointed. Then 901 arrived, mm. and nothing happened. And Khalid was lightly smirking and telling all of his commanders and all of his nobles, See, I told you. Mm. Nothing, we're fine. Then at 902, Thrush, Sparrow and Raccoon simultaneously began firing on the palace with explosive shells. <laughs> So he had given the order at nine o'clock. It had just taken exactly two minutes to get everybody synced up so it all happened at the same time. <laughs> Pretty much. It was like... But it was It was basically the Navy showing off at, look, we can do this synchronised. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to do this hodgepodge. We're just going to... Um, to add insult to injury, the very first shot, the very first shell mm. that flew from the harbour to the palace managed to take out one of the four artillery pieces. Incredible. In terms of lucky shot, it's like, okay, now you have three artillery pieces. And it's great that you have all those machine guns. These are these are naval ships. Please waste your ammunition on us. Yeah. No, they never had a chance. I told you way back when. Ta- huge tactical disadvantage. You should have backed down. Oh, I haven't even got to the worst bit of tactical disadvantage. Because mm. unlike the Portuguese before them, mm. the British had decided not to fortify the structures that could be used against them, mm. should anyone try and, I don't know, stage a rebellion. 
So, <laughs> the Palace of Zanzibar, um, as it had been Basically built... Basically a pleasure a, dome. Yeah, it's a pleasure dome. It was built mainly of wood. Oh, my God. This has been turned into matchsticks. Well, yeah, because the British were using high-explosive shells. Of course. This Why wasn't... would you use anything less than the best? <laughs> this wasn't this wasn't old school cannonballs. This was This isn't this is a Mark Spencer's high explosive show. <laughs> it really was. This was like the the creme de la creme of British ordnance. It's like well mm. we've we've not quite had a an opportunity to use this in we've the East Africa. Madly sphere. inventing things you can do a war crime with. <laughs> <laughs> and now you've given us the perfect excuse, Khalid, to do war crimes. <laughs> After the first barrage... Everybody Khalid... else is too scared to stand up for us. Thank you, Khalid. <laughs> you glorious imbecile. <laughs> Although, Khalid, he wasn't as stupid as all that because as soon as the first barrage had hit the palace, him and his inner circle, going against what he said about you'll have to drag me out, uh, you know, out. over my dead body, uh, he got the hell out of there and he headed for the German consul. <laughs> his remaining loyal troops, mm. uh, and by loyal troops I mean slaves, unfortunately, uh, were ordered to fight on, being told that they would be executed if they left their posts, which meant that they were probably caught between the rockiest and hardest places you could imagine. <laughs> Stuck serving a man who'd abandoned them while death literally reigns from above. Basically, these were people who, through no fault of their own, were stood in a tissue paper fort with artillery on one side and machine guns on the other. Incredible. They ha- they didn't have a chance, and it no. is yeah. Did they all die? Pretty much. Uh, Five hundred of them did. Jesus, one third casualties. That's unbelievable. That's huge. It's a massive casualty rate to the point where the Times, when it was reporting on this conflict, <laughs> probably in a really enthusiastic like, look how well we did. <laughs> that this is from the Times. Yeah. They said the only regret over the occurrences that he should have escaped, referring to Khalid, Mm. and that more of the leading Arabs were not killed instead of their unfortunate slaves. It is acknowledged by everyone that the bombardment was unavoidable owing to Khalid's open defiance, and it is trusted that the Arabs who supported him with their advice and whose names are believed to be known will be made to bear the expense and responsibility of the bombardment and pay claims. So even the times, they took the time to say, it's unfortunate that the people who died were the people who died well, because they had no blame upon them. Because we were, we were heavily into anti-slavery by this point. So if anything, yeah. the fact that it was only slaves who died was a massive propaganda boon for the British. Yeah, makes it look even worse. Yeah, but this is what slavery it, does. That's as close as you're going to get to we've done a bad thing, I suppose, isn't it? But all the fighting wasn't on land. Mm-hmm. There was also, you've got to remember, there was the Zanzibar Navy involved in this particular <laughs> conflict. The ancient Glasgow, as I recall. Mm. And they tried their best to support the troops in the palace. Because the Lunatics. Glasgow did, bravely or stupidly, you decide. Sail towards <laughs> what, what at this point you can safely call a small British fleet. <laughs> yeah, well, not only towards a small br- British fleet, but towards the flagship of the small British fleet. The flagship they, of all the fleets. I think that's how flagships work. No, it's the, it's the flagship of the East Africa Squadron. Oh, right. Uh, okay. The St. George. So they sailed towards the St. George, this 7,000-ton St. George, and they aimed their little 17th-century brass cannons at it and oh. fired. Boldness. Such boldness. The cannonballs hit, hit their mark. 
and bounced off. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yes. And caused slight scuffing. <laughs> which would take minutes to buff out. Oh, there's poor ratings. <laughs> St. George, uh, the crew, first of all, laughed. And when they stopped laughing, <laughs> they responded in kind by firing a single shot from the smallest gun because they didn't want to be cruel. Mm. Uh, this immediately holed and sank the Glasgow. <laughs> His crew, as they were slowly sinking in the water, hoisted a British flag to indicate surrender and the ship, uh, the 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 uh, St George, bless them. They decided to take pity on the crew. Sent out the lifeboats. Sent out well. the lifeboats, and managed to save them all with no loss of life. So the entire. Well, at least at least that one sort of ended about as well as it possibly well, could have. Actually, no. I was about to say that was the end of the naval battle, but no, because having seen the Glasgow heroically go down, two small launches um, were sent out from the uh, dock. Full of Khalid's most loyal, you you've got and to believe fanatical supporters, supporters yeah. Yeah. Uh, armed with muskets. Oh my god! Well, they sailed to the nearest ship, which happened to be the Thrush, and they fired their muskets at the Thrush. And this time, there was damage, as one of the crew was slightly injured. What were they hoping to achieve? This is lunacy. This is about twenty minutes in, and that was the yeah. first bloodshed by uh, a British soldier that day yeah it was also uh the only blood that yeah. was shed by a british soldier that day by the time about 38 minutes had elapsed there's an argument between 38 minutes and 40 minutes um the sustained barrage had set the palace and the harem on fire oh god Not the although harem. living up to its name the building of wonder had miraculously been unscathed <laughs> The remaining three <laughs> artillery pieces had been destroyed, and like I've said previously, around 500 of Khalid's forces and civilians with a bad fortune to be in the palace had died. Then another lucky shot from the British detached the flag from the flagpole, and as it fluttered to the ground at 9.40am, Rawson decided that both the terms of his ultimatum had been met, and he declared the war had been won, because the flag had been taken down and Khalid had fucked off. So, I mean, you can't argue with him. The, 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 the man had two demands and both of them happened. <laughs> it but was, via blasting. So he got exactly what he wanted. It was a war that had lasted a total of 38 minutes and which remains the shortest war in history. Epic. Mm. It's a hell of a story. <laughs> I have to know what happened to Khalid. I, like, I, I want to hear that he like ended up moving to Paris and like pretending to be king for the rest of his life. <laughs> well, the chaos that Khalid had imagined any conflict would cause had amounted to, to be... one afternoon of opportunistic looting that did, to be fair to it, increase the death toll by 20. That's, that's pretty bad looting, Jesus. Mm. Uh, but it was quickly quelled by British soldiers, who also... Yeah from the St. George, provided a fire crew uh, to ensure that the fire at the palace did not spread so, to neighbouring yeah, buildings. So his net at the end of it, probably general approval of the British among the Zanzibar citizenry went up at the end of the day. Well, what happened was... <laughs> yeah, they was... stopped that cousin murdering piece of bastard and then they sent out a fire crew to try and make things better and they stopped all these rubbish looters. I think these... there was a bit of self-interest in the fire crew because what they were making sure was that the palace fire didn't spread to the warehouses on the docks. Yeah, so at the English club. They, yeah, they let the they let the palace burn down um, as a as a kind of warning. 
and because they, you know, they were like, that palace has been up for two hundred years. We could remodel. Let's let's use this as an excuse. We'll it's already encroached. It. It's already encroached into the lighthouse. It's taking up valuable commercial space. <laughs> we we can build a smaller palace for the next sultan that we pick. I mean, when I say palace, he can live in a cottage. Yeah. Uh, and the harem is now houses. the shed. It's yeah. all it's all good. So yeah, all of this was sorted out before sunset. So the the you know by the twenty eighth. The day it after was like the it war, never happened. But yeah, the, the ships the, were the coming back the in. The palace was gone. <laughs> yeah. Aside from the fact that there was now some new real estate that the British could sell, it was as if nothing had happened. Incredible. Khalid, meanwhile, he made it to the German consulate, which mm-hmm. was quickly surrounded by Marines who demanded he be handed over. Mm-hmm. The, Germans, like the Germans are probably telling to piss off. Yeah, the Germans kind of remembering the old um, Matthews coming and uh, fighting the Germans in the Germans' territory in East Africa. They refused to do so. They pointed out that the extradition treaty that they had with the British expressly stated that a fugitive did not need to be handed over when they'd been charged with a political offence. So they were like, although we understand that he is, you know, guilty of rebellion and treason, read the small print, Britain. (laughs) We don't have to, and we we don't want to. So, you know, terms and conditions... That's super German. I love it. It's very stereotypical. So what they did was they waited till high tide. Yeah. And they had a launch from a German warship pull up to the consulate because apparently everything on this island is built on the beach. The palaces. <laughs> why, well, why wouldn't you? The British club is. The German consulate sure as fuck was because they pulled this launch up. But of course the German consulate is on the beach. How else would they get all of the sun loungers? Khalid managed to step from Sun Lounger to Sun Lounger, which all had German towels on, so they were all German property. Nobody nobody could arrest him. Still technically German territory. And then one final leap from the the last Sun Lounger into the launch, and he was spirited away on a German warship to German East Africa, where he remained until World War I. Because, as we know, know, it wasn't just Europe that was a theatre of war in World War yeah. One, hence the name. And during a bit of um, conquest in German East Africa, some British troops came across a bloke called Khalid. <laughs> and yeah. they he, he sort of looked over his papers, saw that he was claiming to be a sultan, sent word back, and promptly arrested him. <laughs> Warrants, don't dis- <laughs> Warrants don't drop in the British Empire. <laughs> no, I mean, it took 20 years, but they got their man. Uh, and they decided that what they'd do is they would send him into exile, which is where he'd been anyway. So it seems so a bit pointless. Basically just left him alone. Yeah, but he was sent to exile uh, on St. Helena. Uh, Alan, oh, my God. Alan Napoleon, because, you know, you've got to make a point. Yeah. Although... Because what he did was exactly the same as what Napoleon I know, did. I feel like sort of in any way equating Khalid with Napoleon seems a false equivalence between the two. It's a bit of, it's a bit of insult to Napoleon, isn't it? Let's be honest with <laughs> Maybe that's why they did it. They're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> This will really get that dead bastard's goat off. <laughs> <laughs> Just tell a friend, he wasn't special. We sent anyone there. <laughs> Look at this guy, he was sultan for two days. Woo! <laughs> Off to St. Just Helena like with Napoleon. <laughs> Eventually, though, unlike Napoleon... They did take pity on Khalid, and he was allowed to return to East Africa in 1922, where he lived out the last five years of his life in Kenya, probably telling everyone he met, you know, I was sultan once. I'm just like Napoleon, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Our lives. The British thought I was a great threat. <laughs> they, only, they only send the most 
devious and cunning of their enemies to St. Helena. They don't just send any old tap. Uh, Khalid's replacement after his, I think, to be fair, three-day reign. Let's give him an extra day. I, I mean, yeah. we'll round up instead of down. Yeah, why not? His replacement, Hamoud bin Mohammed, was installed on the afternoon of the 27th while the palace was still on fire and looting was still being suppressed. So he didn't waste any time. It's almost like the Brits had a guy lined up. Yeah. Well, you've got to get the appearance of legitimacy, haven't you? Mm. Uh, he was almost immediately made to sign a decree ending all <laughs> slavery in Zanzibar. Mm. I, admit, I, I, I My prediction would be that after, watch, that after the nobles and such who were still making money off slavery had watched like three British ships completely annihilate a palace in 40 minutes. <laughs> they gone, yeah, we're not fighting this one. <laughs> so, and now they're saying that they'll be our friend, mm. air quotes. I'd rather have them as a friend, even if it's an incredibly manipulative, gaslighting, you know, yeah. friend. Because it's still as an enemy... Actually, yeah, we don't holy <laughs> shit! Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, the Brits, we are friendly to our friends and uh, Mohammed he was knighted by Queen Victoria oh I mean sir is almost the same as Sultan but of course all of this was small consolation for the nearly 500 slaves who had died during the Anglo-Zanzibar war yeah stood behind wooden walls while being targeted by high explosive ordnance from for this yeah. The cutting edge of British war technology. For the sake of one man's pride and another man's sort of brutalist interpretation of the rules and treaties in play. <laughs> and would you believe that once Britain had completely subjugated the Sultanate of Zanzibar, yeah. there were only four further sultans over the next 67 years. So once the British had got what they wanted, the Sultan suddenly started to have a longer life expectancy. Um, it's all a coincidence. <laughs> but the, la- the last sultan was eventually deposed in 1964. Right. By this time, though, the British had cut all ties with Zanzibar, and we honestly couldn't care less. Yeah. We got what we wanted. After the Second World War, we had very much reduced in terms of our power. So uh, we got we got something out of Zanzibar. And we bailed. And then I we say bailed. we, the upper classes. Everyone bailed. To the point where, when we started this episode, you weren't quite sure where Zanzibar was, or yeah. if it still existed. Yep. But there's one... we, don't talk about, we don't talk about anything about the Empire past when it was good. <laughs> there's one more person that we, we do need to mention. Yes. Um, and that is, of course, the, the victor in the war. The Rear Admiral. Harry Rawson. Yeah. Because for... Awesome Rawson. <laughs> for, for winning... The easiest war that has ever been. Mm. He was awarded with appointment as the first class member of the Order of the Brilliant Star of Zanzibar, which came with another shiny silver medal, which he wore next to his humanitarian medal. Epic. Again, 500 innocent people shelled with high explosive ordnance. He still wore it without any kind of shame or irony because he was British. Yeah. In Victorian Britain, which meant you yeah. got a free pass on those things because they should have known. Shame and irony were for you know foreigners and idiots. <laughs> he would not only go on um, to be a key factor, a key player in the Benin massacre of eighteen ninety seven, which Top. I'm sure we will do an episode on. Top plug. 
but he retired to become governor of New South Wales in Australia. Wow, good about. So, yeah, he, he did quite well for himself. And you, you can only imagine being put in charge of a war that is that one-sided. As, as a career sort of military man, I mean, that's just like a slam dunk. Yeah. One for the stats. <laughs> Isn't it just? Yeah. So, in terms of where I got this story from, uh-huh. uh, the, the source that I used, I used a massive tome, and I mean, it is a huge book. I didn't know how thick it was when I bought it. It's called Britain's Forgotten Wars, Colonial Campaigns of the 19th Century by Ian Hernan. Yeah, that sounds like something that would be much, much bigger than it should be. (laughs) Well, considering this was the 100 Years of Peace, it is over 700 pages long and covers three distinct eras of peace where lots of wars happened. (laughs) The, The section on Zanzibar that I took most of this information from. Eight pages long. Jesus Christ. Eight of those 700 pages. Jesus Christ. We um, did, like, the British... A lot of, lot, of, uh, lot, of, lot of colonialism going on there. <laughs> and I, I... Because of the way he writes it, because of the fact that he seems to be the only person who wants to research these wars, because apparently most historians are happy to just go, and then there were 100 years of peace, mm. and things then let's, started let's to get a little at... bit iffy in Eastern Europe. Let's not look at the embarrassing stuff Yeah, um, <laughs> where we used to send highly trained lads with repeater rifles up against people with spears. <laughs> he, his research seems to be really in-depth and I'm sure we'll be doing other stories from Britain's Forgotten Wars in the future. I look forward to it. Because I've, I've read most of them now and every single one I've gone, that'd make a good episode. Yeah. I mean, and, and let's be honest here, barring the uh, famous Indian mutiny, of the 1850s which is in here yeah but almost all of them will have ended with and it was a complete british victory (laughs) there are at least two sort of sneaky losses that we just kind of swept under the rug and do you know what how we did that mainly Mm -hmm. it's when you when you see and there's like a series it's like the first such and such war as soon as you Mm -hmm. see the first you're like Oh, we lost that one. Yeah. <laughs> and then we came back. Yeah, the only reason there was a second is because we wanted a redo. Yeah. It's like when we, um, we every prepared. boxer who's a champion has a stipulation in every contract. Yeah. Automatic rematch clause. The Brits had an automatic rematch clause throughout the 1800s. Yeah. That's every what you get conflict. When you're the champion of the world. Uh, that's fair enough. No, it's not fair enough. It's bullshit. <laughs> but, but, but you can force the day because you are the heavyweight champion of the world. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric, here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.